Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm hey Joe. there. Oh, you just decided to jump in and, and mess with my intro. Taking my opportunities where they come. Fair enough. Uh, I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. As you might have guessed, that is not Ellie Mistal. That is uh, Catherine Rubino, who is guest hosting once again for us. Hey. So yeah, so Ellie is unavailable. Catherine's graciously decided, also of Above the Law, has graciously decided to uh, host and spend some time with us. How have you been? I'm good? pretty good. How about yourself? Good. What have you been up to lately? Last night, a former podcast guest, Charles Glasser, uh, if you want to go back and listen to that episode, he teaches at the journalism school here at NYU, and he had me over to talk to his grad students about and participate in the class about legal journalism. So they think that you're a journalist? Yeah. Somehow they, he, yeah, he's, he's managed to convince them. So uh, you, you were talking about... What, blogging, journalism, what, what was the deal? Uh, Lots of things. Uh, blogging, both the business side of like just how we do things here, but also for their benefit since they aren't lawyers about, you know, what a civil case looks like, you know, not not <laughs> using the word charged when you're talking about a civil, civil complaint, case, you know, that sure. sort of thing. But it, so it was, it was interesting and it was enlightening to kind of hear what people who don't do this all the time think, because we kind of take for granted. So so one interesting, I'm curious if it came up in the course of your class, but I know given a lot of the sexual harassment and abuse claims that have been in the news lately, there's been some conversation about using the word allegedly when we're talking about people who are being accused of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Did you all get into that issue? Uh, we sure did, partially because I wrote that article about it, which you know. <laughs> uh, but no, there's that we did get into the discussion of what Glasser calls the fig leaf, uh, the saying allegedly in front of everything you write about a case, which obviously has value to the extent that you don't want to get sued for libel, but also... That is a pretty big reason to continue using the word allegedly, I think. Yeah, but there's valid concerns that people have that it contributes to rape culture in a sense to the extent that everyone who reads about these sorts of cases will read alleged, 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 which kind of suggests that we aren't supposed to fully embrace or believe the woman's story. Maybe it's more about the way we think of that word, right. allegedly, because, you know, I think the more that we hear these, you know, deluge of cases and accounts about Harvey Weinstein and Charlie Rose and just the sheer number of women that are coming forward, I think that it kind of takes the sting out of that word. I mean, maybe. And that's certainly a good point. And I think that there's what I kind of concluded is that if there's any value to not using that terminology and saying, you know, they said or according to them, whatever, mm -hmm. then it's worth doing. But ultimately, those will become just as co-opted as allegedly because it's just something where there's not an easy answer other than, you know, improved education and more people knowing why those of us in the media use words like that to not, you know, go out of business. Liable lawsuits. We don't yeah, want to be the next right. gawker. And not that that was liable, but. Right. Exactly. It could easily have been. Teal exactly. could have easily found a libel case. Absolutely. So, yeah. So yeah, so that's what we did. And that's uh, that brings you up to date. You uh, had a very productive and kind of thinking evening. Yeah. That's, yeah. No Monday Night Football for you? 
I did see a little bit of it. I saw just enough of Jimmy Graham getting a touchdown to power my team to victory. Ah, fantasy. Yeah. yeah. The, the juice is loose. Managed to is that win. the name of your team? Yes. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And today, um, do you watch a lot of TV, Catherine? I watch a fair amount. Yeah. So the good news is we're going to talk a little bit about TV today. I love TV. <laughs> Our guest today is Jonathan Shapiro, who is in the television business, as well as other things. But we really want to focus on a lot of TV stuff. So welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. I, I liked listening to what you were talking about. Cool. Yeah. No, we, we try to be fun, you know. Well, I guess that was a more serious conversation, but, you know, she bantered with me. In a, we, we talked about fantasy football, too. Not a lot of great banter out there, so it's, it's, it's always good to hear high-quality banter. Fair enough. Well, like, yeah, it's, I'm putting that on my resume, high-quality banter. Oh, yeah, no, that's... That's a good one. Yeah. So, so let, I guess let's begin but from the beginning, kind of tell us about yourself. Now, you were a lawyer before you got into this business. Uh, that's true, and and I never really thought I'd go into this business. I was a federal prosecutor for ten years, and then um, became the chief of staff for a lieutenant governor in California, and did a bunch of stuff. And uh, then my wife, who's a television writer and producer, she wrote for Roseanne for a number of years, and Friends, and is the uh, person who wrote the lyrics to "Smelly Cat." Very proud of that. Oh, um, nice. Twins, that's awesome. Uh, we had twins, and she said, you know, if you could sell a script and get into the Writers Guild, we could get double health benefits. And uh, <laughs> I, 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 I wrote a script, and somehow her agent got it to David Kelly, and I had a meeting with David Kelly, and he said, uh, did anything funny ever happen to you in court? Uh, and I told him a story, and he said, great, write that. And uh, that was it. <laughs> that was in the year 2000, and uh, I've been doing this ever since. Wow. It's kind of a, a sad commentary on the legal profession that it's like, well, you should probably try to sell a script for healthcare because <laughs> I don't know if your legal career can cut it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I married a very nice Jewish woman from, and I'm Jewish, so this is not an anti-Semitic comment, uh, just in case you thought Jonathan Shapiro was passing. I, I, I married a very nice uh, Brandeis graduate who majored in economics who seemed to understand the um, the value of healthcare. So uh, it's funny. I'm a third generation Angelino, and we never had show people in our family. We really like people who grow up in Los Angeles. We viewed people in show business as slightly below carnies. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know that my parents were thrilled with my job choice and career switch, but it's worked out. It's worked out. So, I mean, lawyers oftentimes get a reputation for being risk averse. What was it like when you took the leap and were like, I'm going to put my legal career on hold and actually do Hollywood full time? Scary. <laughs> it was scary as hell. Uh, it's funny. You, you raised such a good point. I was just talking to, to somebody about this at a speech I gave last week at Loyola. I never thought of myself as risk adverse until I did make the switch. And I really came to understand what thinking like a lawyer means. Thinking like a lawyer means uh, weighing the options and choosing the most conservative, careful one, unless you're a plaintiff's lawyer, at which point uh, <laughs> you still have to be conservative in your choices or you'll go out of business. So it was really scary. And um, it was, uh, I feel fortunate that my first job was on a show 
that the practice, which allowed me to use a lot of material that I was, I had real personal ownership of because they were, they were stories that had happened to me for the first year. I think I, every, every single script I wrote was something that specifically happened to me. And, um, you know, I always tell young people or old people or middle-aged people, uh, who ask me, how do you get into the business? How do you become a writer? Do something else first, get a storehouse of material that you can draw from. Because it is scary, and if you don't uh, if you don't prove your your value to the show, they fire you. I can remember after the first thirteen mm-hmm. weeks of my job on the practice, I came in and the offices next to me were empty. Maybe it was working for the federal government for ten years and then large law firms, but the idea that they fire you and you clean your stuff out uh, and that's it in a day, I found that somewhat uh, bracing. Stressful. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, what was the story, the funny story of the thing that happened to you that so intrigued David Kelly that you started this new career? I had a, uh, I was a honors program attorney at the Justice Department right out of law school, and one of the guys I started with was a guy named Rod Rosenstein. So I don't, I don't know whatever happened to him. <laughs> I've but, heard of um, him. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So I was in D.C. Superior Court, 1990 handling basic, you know, felony two cases and doing a bunch of trials. And there was a judge who would do his sentencing on Monday morning. So they'd bring in 12 defendants at a time and he would sentence them. And because of the nature of of the criminal docket at that point, they were pretty much all drug cases. What he would do is he would give each defendant this very long speech about Ray Charles and about how Ray Charles overcame drug addiction, even though he was blind to become a great American icon. Now the the difficulty was that uh, they do the sentencings at the same time. So the first guy heard the Ray Charles speech and then the second guy heard the Ray Charles speech. So by the third Ray (laughs) Charles speech defendant, we all knew the speech and the last guy who sentenced, none of whom, by the way, were drug addicts. They were all drug distributors. But anyway, the last guy to hear the speech laughs, which oh, no. we all wanted to, but he just wasn't able to stop himself. And the judge gave him the uh, highest sentence of all. Oh, and so the, 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 it, it, became, it became kind of clear to me that this judge – Speech was more about the judge than about maybe trying to reach these guys. Anyway, it was that story. And um, uh, David Kelly had, had lost 15 pages of a script he was writing at the time. And he said, we'll just do that. So the nice thing is <laughs> the, actor who played, the actor who played the judge ended up winning an Emmy for Best Guest Star nice. for playing that judge. So it was, uh, it was a cool way to start. But I, I was thinking the other day that the first time somebody came in for casting and read my stuff, it was surreal and fantastic. I mean, I was kind of hooked. There's nothing like writing something and then having a really talented professional actor give it life. And um, yeah, I was hooked after that. Wow. So this might be kind of like choosing between children, which, you know, but 
of all the shows you've worked on, what one did you enjoy writing the most for whatever reason? Uh, I, you know, boy, that's, yeah, that's hard. There, uh, <laughs> it's easier to tell you which show I liked writing the least, but, uh, I'm Fair too much enough. of a gentleman to it. say it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have to say, uh, when the practice was ending, the last two years of the practice, we added James Spader. And mm-hmm. it is a delight to write speeches for James Spader. I wrote an episode of uh, Boston Legal where, because there are no cameras in the Supreme Court, I thought it would be fun to get a case that was on the docket that would be argued and then the opinion would come out after we had already done that case on our show, if that makes any sense. So what we did is we picked Kennedy versus Louisiana, which was a death penalty case. And then we cast actors as the justices of the Supreme Court. And we had Spader as the lawyer for the defendant who was on death row for child rape where there had been no deaths. And, uh, That was, you know, to be able to write dialogue for the Supreme Court and to have Spader uh, get to uh, say things that would get him thrown in jail in real life was, you know, sublime. The strangest part of that being walking into a casting session with all the women who want to play Ruth Bader Ginsburg and realizing how many women in Hollywood look exactly like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. (laughs) I noticed that, that the guy we cast as Chief Justice Roberts has kind of made a career playing Chief Justice Roberts. Um, so that's, that he's the Van Meter of our generation. But it's... Uh, it's a lifetime appointment, just like... Oh! Lifetime appointment. I, I love writing for actors like Spader who are just so smart that they not only fully understand the words, but bring their own unique talents to raising the materials quality. Damian Lewis, uh, who I wrote for on a show called Life, great English actor, great talent. You know, when you, when you have an opportunity to write for really smart people, it makes a huge difference. Well, I have a question about your bio that stuck out to me. So after several years of doing this, there's a stint where you go back to working at a firm for a little bit? That's true. That's true. Well, I, I don't yeah. know how you go yeah. back. <laughs> what was it like going back? I can't imagine well, it that. A, it was a strange set of circumstances. First of all, I, I have a lot of friends from the U.S. Attorney's Office who have gone into private practice, uh, including a couple of guys who, who uh, ended up at Kirkland and Ellis. I had a, uh, a show that didn't last terribly long on the WB. As a matter of fact, I think we destroyed the channel. It, 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 the channel stopped <laughs> existing. It, it just wasn't, we weren't just canceled. They actually canceled the entire network. That's how the show went. You're done here. Yeah, we're done. We're done with the whole thing. They almost can't, they almost, <laughs> I think we may have almost destroyed television itself, but the uh, star of that show was a fellow named Don Johnson. And uh, that's a, a whole story unto itself. But Don, uh, after the show was canceled, came to me and said he had a case based on uh, Nash Bridges, and would I like to handle it? And I said, well, I don't really handle those cases because uh, I don't practice anymore, but I referred the case to a friend of mine who, at the time, never did any show business cases, Mark Holscher, who was a partner at Kirkland & Ellis, 
and was an AUSA with me. And I said to Mark, look, I'm going to send you a case. Pretend it's not a show business case. Pretend it just involves widgets. Because one thing I've noticed in Hollywood is entertainment lawyers rarely actually ever go into court, and they never sue. So I thought, well, if I send it to Kirkland and Ellis, which is sort of like the law firm that the Germans would have used if they had won the war, this would be a good fit. And so my friend Mark Holscher at Kirkland and Ellis takes the case and gets Don a $38 million verdict at jury. Which is upheld. Nice. For which I receive nothing. Not a bottle <laughs> of wine. Not a oh. not. So years later, I wrote a pilot and ABC bought it, but then didn't air it. And honestly, I just said, you know, I think I'm done. Apparently, America does not want to be entertained by me. And um, so I was sharing the, these thoughts with my friend Mark. And he said, well, could, you know, we've, we've established a tremendous entertainment business after that Don Johnson case. Would you like to work on those cases? And I said, sure. So I, it just, honestly, as, as I said before, uh, you know, I think it's incredibly important that if you're going to write for a living, that you have experiences that you can draw from. And I realized I had done political asylum cases for public counsel but I hadn't really kept a hand in, in law very much. And I thought it would actually be fun, <laughs> if you can imagine, to go back uh, and practice. And honestly, it was fun because the law had changed so much since I had been practicing. Just the idea of a paperless environment was heady and sort of intoxicating for me. And uh, I loved it. I mean, I really was getting uh, a lot of satisfaction. There's something very infantilizing about show business. Mm -hmm. Every time I sell a show, the first thing they do is kick me out of the room so the executives and lawyers can negotiate my deal. It was fun to sort of, you know, get back into the fight. And I, I would have stayed at Kirkland and Ellis, but Amazon Prime bought an idea that David Kelly and, and I had had years ago which became the show Goliath and I became the showrunner of that show. And so I kind of had to, I had to hang them up, but I, I'm assured right. uh, my colleagues at Kirkland Ellis assure me that, that me retiring again from the law had no negative impact on Kirkland and Ellis <laughs> or the law. Itself. Yeah. I hear they're doing all right, but you know, they're trudging through. Here's what, here's what I love. Here's what I love about Kirkland and Ellis. Goliath is about a lot of things, but it, there's an incredibly evil law firm at the center of the first season of Goliath. And in the New York times article, I, I was interviewed and I said that uh, I want to make absolutely clear that the evil law firm in the show Goliath is in no way based on the actual real firm Kirkland and Ellis. I wanted to make that very clear. And and I got a call from my friends at Kirkland and Ellis saying, why would you say that? It would have helped our recruiting if we could have said we were the evil law firm. So I, it's a very odd profession we're in. You, you, you can't win. You can't win. Speaking of uh, earlier when you said yeah, you almost destroyed television, in a sense, you're working for Amazon, uh, which really is part, of, is part of the uh, at the real destroying of television. <laughs> what's it What's it like to write shows in that format? Is there any real difference from your end on putting together a show for a streaming service than regular TV? 
Yeah, it's it's profoundly different, and uh, we hadn't really understood the difference until we we did it. And it's new enough that you feel like you're kind of um, creating templates. But we're not the first. So, I mean, the first big difference, of course, is there are no commercials, uh, which was true of premium cable as well. But to make the transition from network to a format that allows you to tell a story all the way through without having to kind of create the false climaxes in between leading into a commercial and leading out of a commercial, you know, we just got to write an hour of material that was then viewed like we intended it to be written. So there's that. Secondly, there's a lot of technological differences in terms of when you have to deliver the cuts of the show so that they can make them viewable everywhere in the world. When the show premiered on October 14th, you know, we put all the episodes online on October 15th. I got emails and phone calls from people in Saudi Arabia and India (laughs) and the United States and the reach of the Amazon platform is just remarkable. So with that in mind, you know, we didn't do anything to the substance of the show. We didn't think in terms of, well, will this play in Mumbai? We just, you know, we wrote the best show we could. And I think we were, David and I were both surprised at how universal the story seems or how sophisticated the viewers are in the American legal system and the American corporate system. So that was all different. You know, it was wonderful not to have a network that was constantly giving us notes on each episode. They made a commitment to put the whole show on the air. Uh, We didn't have to do a pilot first. The budgets were were very uh, competitive with networks. So it's a brave new world for those of us who create content. And that's that's great. All these platforms and all these new outlets uh, give us more opportunities. I'll tell you what the downside is. We are all sort of drowning in narrative. There are so many quality shows on so many different outlets that a lot of great shows are just, uh, I think, uh, not able to find a market. It is. It's different. Yeah. I mean, I personally really enjoy being able to binge my television. So this is good for me. No, and, it, you know, of course, when I started, the practice was not really considered a hit. Uh, it was a critical hit, but it wasn't considered a, a, a popular hit because we only got 11 mil, 10 or 11 million viewers. My goodness, if you got 10 or 11 million viewers now, yeah. you'd, they'd put you on the cover of a magazine. You'd be a big deal. <laughs> um, my, my wife created a show with Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith called All of Us that ran for four years and was canceled because it only had 4 million viewers or 5 million. Again, that show would still be on the air with those numbers. So I think lawyers and people in the television industry face a similar dilemma, which is we're trying uh, often to get the attention of a, uh, a very overserved public. And uh, it's difficult to, to stand out. Yeah. So the last question I kind of have is, and we've kind of danced around it, but I want to kind of focus this question. So the writer's room environment, how similar or different, compare and contrast that with working on, say, a trial trial team team or some kind of litigation team or, yeah. What what things do you see there that are the same kind of dynamics and different? 
Wow, that's a good question. I, th- th- what's similar is when I got hired the first time, my wife, of course, had spent many years in writer's room. Writer's rooms often is the only woman in the room. And so had specific thoughts in terms of of that. But I called a, a friend of mine named Alan Zweibel, who's a kind of a famous, he yeah. is a famous and, and much beloved writer of Saturday Night Live and, and uh, many other things. And I said, what's the secret to succeeding in a writer's room? And he gave me some advice, which would actually be very good advice for young lawyers starting out in a firm. Alan said, a writer's room is like high school. <laughs> there, there are going to be the cool kids, and then there are going to be the nerds. And there's going to be a lot of drama, and there's going to be a lot of gossip, and there's going to be a lot of wanting to be popular, and there will be clicks. And he said, if you want to succeed, ignore all of it. All of it. Just stick your head down and work. Be friendly to people. Be nice to people. Be helpful to people. But don't get your affirmation and love from the writer's room. And I thought that's a really good piece of advice to give to a young lawyer. If I've seen anything in my years as a lawyer and as a writer, I've seen that people's need to be appreciated, loved, uh, approved, leads them to do things that ultimately are destructive, not only to the project, but to themselves. And uh, if you just stick your head down and be nice to everybody and do your work, uh, good things will happen. And that seems simple enough. And, and yet, uh, I have seen more lawyers and more writers misbehave and say things that got them fired than I can count. Well, great. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was huge. I, I uh, loved it. I, I, I hope you can use any of it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Goliath uh, coming back, right? Goliath is coming back in the midst of the second season as we speak. And uh, okay. I, I am also co-executive producing a show called The Blacklist with James Spader on NBC. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and you, can, you can see my work there as well. Excellent. Great. Thanks. Thank you all for listening, too. Uh, If you aren't already subscribed, you should do that. You should also give us reviews and help our show go up the algorithms. You can follow us uh, at Above the Law on Twitter. I'm at Joseph Patrice. You're at Catherine One. You should follow the LTN app uh, because it'll let you hear all the other Legal Talk Network shows. And with that, I think we've accomplished every bit of shilling that I had to do there at the end. Cool. So we'll uh, talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.